Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Jump Scares, because loud, sudden noises are easier than writing a good movie. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by PediaEase. Even the village idiot can't mess up a cure this simple. Feel better with PediaEase. <laughs> Have you seen the movie? (laughs) Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers. Um, We do a lot all over the place. Um, I'm in pre-production for some short films and also in post-production for a corporate project. We use all that kind of knowledge as a means of discussing film and, and, and analyzing it busting it up to some degree or another and just kind of seeing what makes it tick, what makes it work. What are we doing today, man? Today we are doing The Sixth Sense. So if you haven't seen this film, please pause this episode and go watch it. We're going to spoil everything. And this is this is a big spoiler film. So please pause the episode, go watch it. Yeah, this is one that we've probably been dancing around since the first episode. <laughs> so it'll be nice to actually just talk about it. And we'll cover a, a handful of things, not a ton on the, the agenda for me anyway. Uh, we'll look at some of the cinematography, reveals, coverage, theatrical flair, and there's a pun there. Um, and as well as some of the writing and directing, pacing, and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film. <laughs> Can't even give anything away in the synopsis, huh? Uh, Malcolm Crow, a child psychologist, starts treating a young boy, Cole, who encounters dead people and convinces him to help them. In turn, Cole helps Malcolm reconcile with his estranged wife. It's written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, cinematography by Tak Fujimoto, featuring Bruce Willis as Malcolm, Haley Joel Osment as Cole Sear, Tony Collette as Cole's mom, and Olivia Williams as Anna. Grandma says hi. She says she's sorry for taking the bumblebee pendant. She dislikes it a lot. What? Grandma comes to visit me sometimes. Cole, that's very wrong. Grandma's gone, you know that. I know. She wanted me to tell you. Cole, please. She wanted me to tell you she saw you dance. She said. When you were little, you and her had a fight right before your dance recital. You thought she didn't come to see you dance. She did. She hid in the back so you wouldn't see. She said you were like an angel. She said you came to the place where they buried her. Asked her a question. She said the answer is every day. I started crying during that scene. That's the best scene of the whole movie. I'm so glad that you... The whole movie, bro. Like, she does some... I mean, obviously, Haley Joel Osment is otherworldly. Otherworldly. But Tony Collette is the heartbeat of the whole movie. Like, I forget just how incredible she is in this movie. And she only has, you know, a, a, a small chunk of scenes where she gets to turn it on. But, oh my God, she is... And they're the technical things she's kind of doing, even in that scene, like if you want to give someone a look and really give like a profound, like what a whoa kind of like look of shock. But the problem is she, she wanted to give him that look, but she was already looking at him. How do you deliver that look when you're already looking at someone you look away? 
And so she finds a moment to look away so that whenever he drops the line, that's like revelatory. She can now look back and give him that look like the technical things that are just so fluid. They're so ingrained and lived in. That's just a professional at the top of their craft. God, what do you think of this movie? Tony Collette. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the whole thing, man. Does this hold up? I guess is my other question. Like it's been over 20 years now. How's it live now? Well, first off, yes, Tony Collette is my favorite part of this whole movie. And I didn't even recognize her. <laughs> right. I, I I didn't. You know, I'm pretty good, I think, at recognizing people. I mean, Bruce Willis is Bruce Willis. He's always looking exactly <laughs> the same. Uh, but Tony Collette, like, I mean, she felt familiar, but I, I remember thinking when she because I haven't seen this movie in, you know, uh, two decades almost. Yeah. <laughs> like, I remember seeing, you know, seeing her as the, like, you see her as the mom in that first, I guess, scene when she's doing the laundry or whatever. And anyway, and I remember thinking, okay, she's just an ancillary character. I didn't remember how important she was. And I didn't know that it was Tony Collette. Tony Collette, as in like hereditary Tony Collette. Right. <laughs> and, um, but anyway, and, I didn't realize how heavy of a, a role she played. And so it was just kind of like operating with like, okay, I'm going to pay attention to the kid. I'm going to pay attention to Bruce Willis. Like that was, those were the, the yep. things. And then they started cutting, giving her more scenes, more moments of like, oh, she's looking at, she's doing the laundry and she's looking at the pictures of him and she sees the little light in the photographs and that she notices. I'm like, okay. But I noticed that that was a, that was an idea of like developing her character. You know, like mm. that scene was to develop the mom. You know, she's doing cleaning up his room and she finds him, his writings. That's also, it, yes, it furthers him, his character, the kid's character, but it, it further cements her and her involvement in him. And then the, the scene with, with the doctor, M. Night Shyamalan, who is, that's M. Night Shyamalan, the doctor, <laughs> her talking to the doctor. I'm like, oh, they're giving her a lot. Okay. So I'm, you know, a quarter of the way, three or, you know, halfway into the movie. And I'm thinking, oh she's pretty important she's pivotal to this film and i and then so i guess the point is that it was such a it was a wonderful the experience for me watching it this time knowing already that bruce willis's character is dead and and what am i going to get out of it was the realization of the re-realization of how important the mom is Mm. throughout the whole film it was like i was like oh Oh, okay. She's still, she's still there. She's still there. They're coming back to her, back to her, back to her. And how great that was. Your point is totally spot on. I feel like this is just as much a story of her and her dealing with being a single mom, you know, having to work at the same time as having to take care of her son who is going through something that she doesn't know or understand. She can't force it out of him. She just has to love him. She's uh, a normal human being who gets mad and they don't shy away from that, but then feels awful about it. That is every parent. You will, if, if you do not ever get mad at your kids and, and, you know, maybe raise your voice at times or get frustrated or short with them, then you're not human. Right. It's just going to happen. But in a scenario like this, where you have this really sweet kid who we know as a character, as as the audience is going through something very traumatic. Right. We don't necessarily fully know what it is, but we know that it's 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 a lot. We kind of know what it is, but we know it's a lot. So we have sympathy for the kid. But how does the mom who has zero idea, you know, deal with the kid not you know, seemingly maybe stealing her things, the pendant, the bumblebee pendant, you know, being quiet and and um, going through like this traumatic stuff and crying all the time and being scared all the time. How does that mom be empathetic to the kid without asking anything of him? Like what's wrong? And he can't tell her. So anyway, the film to me was was less about Bruce Willis's character and his story arc for me and more about the mom this time, maybe because now I'm a parent and (laughs) watching it is different. So in that regard, I feel like it held up really well. I feel like the way that they, the cinematography was really great. I mean, the scene with the doctor is a great example of, Mm. of using foreground to, to place you in a place like they could have been in any room. They could have been in this room, you know, just take all in my room, just take all the stuff out. Right. And you put like one of those 
little block things with the with the the metal bars on it like the kids play with in a doctor's office in front of the camera and you're shooting into that to both the doctor and to the mom now all of a sudden we're in a, a, a pediatric doctor's office you know like that's something that anybody can do yeah and it's a brilliant use of a small space right if they have a small space the iconic shot of of cole when he tells him that he's that he's he can see dead people like in the doctor's office with the the blanket you know is a beautiful shot beautiful setup all the setups leading up to us finding out that bruce willis's character has is actually dead where he doesn't interact like he never actually speaks to anybody but we don't really notice that because we're just put in these scenarios having no idea how he gets there or how he leaves him sitting in the room with the mom when cole comes home is a great example of that. Imagine, you know, seeing this in a theater, having no idea what to expect. They're just sitting there. You are you expect that maybe something was said and they're just waiting for Cole to come home. And, you know, they're just sitting in silence, awkward silence, right? And so she's taking this, this opportunity to stand up when Cole gets home to get out of that awkward silence and go over to him. Another great scene is the one where he comes to dinner. He yeah, goes yeah. to dinner with his wife. They, you know, she's sitting there in silence. You can tell that she's quote unquote, or you think that she's mad and that's why she's quiet. And then they bring the the check. He reaches for it, but she grabs it. And then she looks up a couple of times. It's you know? cued on laughter in the background. Like the motivation for her character is actually to look at what was so funny up there. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. but for the scene, it just looks like to your point, it she's just looking looks like at she's looking up at. Yeah. Yeah. At, at Malcolm. And, and then her not looking up and, and saying happy anniversary. Mm-hmm. We know now she was just having an anniversary dinner with herself, you know, because she misses him. But, but like, it, like to us in the moment, we're thinking that she's speaking to him and she's giving him a little snide remark of like, thanks yeah. for showing up asshole, you know? Uh, and it's, so it was really, really well done. Nice. Um, anyway. So yeah, great. It was great, but for a very different reason for me. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I think I I feel like I've watched this recently within the last three or four years, but suddenly watching it this time felt really different. I don't know what it was, but I thought I could see the dating on this movie a lot clearer than like we did Crimson Tide a few weeks ago. It didn't feel dated at all. It felt like yeah. You could throw that in a cinema right now. This, I feel like you throw it in a cinema, people are going to know they're watching a classic. Um, yeah. There's something with the cinematography, the lighting, and and the music even. The score felt very of its time. Not that it's a bad score. It just felt very dated. It felt like, okay, this is uh, playing on all the traditional cues. I think ghost stories are really, really hard to do in any era. But especially now, we've we've seen it all. How do you surprise us? Because a film this slow in the, one of the cool things about this movie is I don't think there are any visual effects as far as they go is like breathing, like the cold breath, but that's like a practical thing, right? Everything else is just makeup. Even whenever he finds out he's a ghost um, in my head, there's like this moment where he looks at his hand and it's transparent, but that's not the case. He's, He's just looking at his hand and just, doesn't have the ring on it. Like there are no, from what I can tell or what I can remember, I didn't pick up on any visual effects and every other ghost movie does some kind of visual effect, uh, to make it feel big budget Hollywood, uh, story. And this relied solely on the performances and the writing. And even if I didn't necessarily love all the cinematography on a, just a pure aesthetic basis, it's still perfect. It's still telling the story exactly the way it needs to be told. Like even shooting in the the car, the, that scene we shot, I can imagine that's one of those, you, it's a special car. You're, you're removing the front end of that car so that you can get the camera just into the right position for both of them. Um, there might even be two different cars, one where the half the roof is gone so that whenever you're shooting him, you can get the camera uh, into, into position because it looks like a, a little bit longer lens, maybe not like super long, but the angle just felt like they need a little extra room. Maybe not. I don't know. But the angle on her definitely looked like it was coming from the dashboard. Um, and so that's just a lot of money to get just the right shot. If they if that's the direction they went. I don't know that they did. That's just 
me guessing. They do that a lot in films, though, where you just chop the front end of a limo off and now you're just uh, can light it and get all your gear in just the way you want your camera operators and fighting shadows to get into the right position. It just pays dividends oddly to spend whatever 200 grand on a $20,000 car to, to get it just so that you can fly things out and move doors out on, you know, in, in 20 seconds. But yeah, I think it still works. Like it's still such a good compelling movie uh, for me because all the performances are so even keel like Bruce Willis and Haley Joel Osment, their characters don't allow them to do a lot all the time. Like Haley Joel Osment has a few moments where he, ha- where he can burst out, right? The stuttering Stanley moment is just very loud and grating. You're like, Oh my God, like someone just stop. <laughs> but it's a, it's a good moment to kind of demonstrate how, how much he's struggling with and what he's, what's, what he's combating with. But otherwise all the emotions coming from Tony Collette, like even Olivia Williams as Anna, Malcolm's wife, like she, we barely get to see her face, <laughs> let alone see, you know, listen to her talk. Um, and so there's, a, there's not a lot she can do. Now, if you're an actor where we cannot see your face and not hear your voice and you can still influence the film on an emotional level, my God, yeah. your hair yeah. must be something else or your hands or something. I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, and so there's just not a lot for everyone else to do. And Tony Collette really steps in to fill in uh, a lot of the emotional elements. Every freak out, every time, like you said, she's struggling to raise his son by herself, two jobs and to connect. And uh, so every time she, as the mom, gets to step in and like feel the emotions that no one else gets to feel in the film. Um, it really compounds like it's all been compounding mm. and she's like this valve where it just all comes out. Um, and that's a lot, that's a lot to take on as an actor. Um, but my God, if very anyone much. Can. And then, um, I mean, there were some moments for me too, where I was like, my God, nobody talks like this. Uh, like yeah. the, the yeah, ring yeah. moment where, um, Anna is selling the ring to yeah. that couple. <laughs> I mean, first um, I thought, I thought, okay, this is cheesy and I don't believe it. And, but then I realized like, this didn't even need to really be there. Like they didn't need that. They don't need to introduce these ancillary characters that have nothing to do with anything just to make some kind of like, to give her some kind of monologue that About is kind of like, yeah, it's like, we know that she misses Malcolm. Like it's obvious. We don't need her to, but anyway, uh, I thought that was a throwaway uh, scene for sure. But yeah, yeah, you know, there were there were some moments where I thought like that nobody talks like that, but I did really like the sound on this and I really liked a lot of the delivery of the mm-hmm. lines that it was just quiet. It was all very quiet. It was which made the louder moments like the stuttering Stanley and like a few others like really jump out, you know. I mean, jump scares, I can't stand jump scares. I think they're lazy. I mean, as yeah. we, you know, the <laughs> intro, you know, mentioned, I think they're lazy and boring and done. But remember, you know, when this came out as well. And so there were a few in here, but it just makes them even more, you know, of a of a thing when all of the conversation that happens between Malcolm and Cole is all whispering. Mm. It's bare. It's barely you know, I mean, what, the way we're talking now is way louder than yeah. what they were talking, you know, in how they were talking in the film. And um, just the quality of the sound is so crisp and beautiful. It's and again, I mean, we've we've talked about this, uh, about like some older films, 20, 30 years old, that for some reason, the sound is just so much clearer, I guess, is a better is a good way to say it. I'm not sure. It's just it's. it's not like it's like shrill, um, but it's just really, I I feel like it's natural and, and feels well done more so than a lot of newer films that I think rely on too much music um, and too much sound design. I feel like this was very much about conversation. And so all of the emphasis was put on, you know, dialogue, and capturing dialogue in a great way. Completely agree. Like even that moment, right. When uh, Malcolm is listening to the the old tape of Vincent Gray, like oh, by yeah. being so disciplined with all the other audio around it. Now, whenever you crank up 
the the audio to a 10 right and it's so funny he starts at a two um and he goes all the way to a 10 and you hear the 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 noise level rise and that kind of discipline with the rest of the film really helps that pop out and makes it feel like he's turned this way the hell up and it's just the sound design is really fantastic on this whole thing and the pacing too i really do love the pacing like it's very deliberate and slow especially on cole like everything he says super thoughtful but even more than that deliberate like he's he's weighing every single word he says around everyone because he doesn't know who's trusting him who's going to label him a freak and just the emotional vulnerability really comes through in his delivery in his pacing like he waits he thinks he decides to respond then finally speaks like it's just this whole process that he's got a lot going on inside and just by pacing it the way they do you can tell he's got a lot going on inside i'm i mean you're totally right a great example of that for me was when um cole gets home after like when he and his mom are sitting there in the in the in there and playing the game the mind reading game the mind reading game i think it's a great example of that where he says i'm gonna read your mind blah 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 he goes through the whole thing and he the setup with his fingers on his on his you know his temples and then put brings his hands together takes a beat and then says a thing like it's a long process but we stay with him we don't do a million cuts we're just in the space with them and it because it takes a while and or because there's not as many cuts we feel like we're really in this conversation we're not cheating time at all with cuts because cuts sometimes can feel like you're cheating time Without yeah. you knowing it, yeah. you know, like if we had three different angles of him, it would feel, but it still took the same amount of time. It would feel very different because we would feel like we're cheating time a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, because it feels like the camera is moving or, or that we're getting a different angle. So we have to feel something a little different. So it's it just, it, but they stay on him in that one shot. And the I think we only have like really three shots. We have a shot on Cole, we have a shot on Malcolm, and then we have a foot shot on Cole as he takes steps forward or back. That's really it, right? So we're just living in this space with them, and it it's just a one of my favorite examples of acting. Let's just say, is it like up there? It's up there with me. Is when Malcolm dies. In the moment when he dies, he goes from because the, the camera's right on his face, and they don't cut away. He said, he says, it's fine. It doesn't even hurt anymore. And then he dies. But that's how you die on camera. You just do nothing. You don't go, oh, you know, or, or like (laughs) sag different. Yeah. You like, it was, I I was watching it. I watched it like three times thinking, how do I feel like I see his soul leave his body? I I really felt like that. I felt like, oh, there it is. There it is. That's the that's the moment right there. And every time it was the exact same moment. I was like, that's the moment. That was a great piece of acting to go from doing so little already to being dead is so hard to do on camera when the camera is six inches from your face, you know? And he just nailed that. Like very few other it's my one of my favorite death scenes ever because it's so underdone yeah you know honestly so bruce willis just destroyed this role for me absolutely like the pacing i think is also important because imagine if we're not doing those things that we're talking about where we're not taking our time now you're kind of rushing through and what you're doing is kind of destroying all the grounding of this world like it feels suddenly melodramatic. Like if he just walks up and hands that dad the box at the funeral and says, your daughter wanted you to have this and walks away. Like it feels undercooked. It feels uh, flimsy and fake. Whereas if he's taking his time, now you're, you're in, you begin to anticipate. And it's that little moment of like, okay, what is he going to say? And you're tuning in everything you're talking about, like uh, the more you have to sit and focus and and concentrate, the more it pulls you into the story. Now you feel like you're there. Whereas if you don't do those things, not only do you not feel like you're there, you feel like you're watching a a movie with a bunch of bad acting uh, because the lines, the dialogue sometimes is so like specific to this universe that you're like, no one talks like that. But 
if you take a really long time to say it, suddenly they talk like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing oh, too. And th- that's a yeah. gr- that is a great example when when Cole gives the dad the box. Mm-hmm. We never see the dad's face until the dad is watching the video. They just stay on Cole the whole time. Cole walks through the room, you know, and the dad is just staring down, doesn't look up at Cole at all until Cole says something. And then he looks up and normally we would have like a, a, a reverse cut, maybe, maybe a dirty over the shoulder of Cole or something, or maybe a single of the dad's face or something, but we don't see the dad at all. The dad is not part of the story yet. The story is Cole completing this task of helping this, this ghost, this girl, by giving the box to the dad. And it's not until the dad, you know, we don't see it happen, but it's not until the dad actually like, like, well, I guess we do see it happen. He takes the box and he opens the thing. Then it's still we over see the, the shoulder. It's still over the shoulder. We don't see the dad's face at all until it's the dad's story, which is when he's watching the, the video. Yes. And that is whole, a great storytelling. It is. Know? This whole film is all about perspective. Whoever, is the main focus of the scene. It's their perspective. When Malcolm is in the room, we're seeing it from his perspective. When he's not in the room, uh, it's either going to be Cole's perspective or Cole's mom or, and whenever they're none of it, then it's Anna. Like perspective is shifting all over the place. Um, And sometimes you think you're watching it from one perspective to realize you're actually seeing it from another. Cause there's that scene, the continuation of that ring scene that you were talking about. Um, We're watching, Later on in the day in the store, Anna is talking with that that guy that looks like he's trying to hit on Anna. Um, and we think we're we're just entering this moment until you realize, oh, Malcolm is watching this whole time, right? With the window break. And now the perspective suddenly shifts to we were seeing someone else's point of view we didn't realize. And there's so many things. For one, the patience, going back to that just for a second, is also really important because if you start cutting around, like you were talking about, if you have you know, four other angles and you're cutting around all this, every single cut that you make is energy. You're creating energy with every single cut. Um, And if you're not doing that intentionally, you can be creating energy as an excuse to, because you're insecure about your story. Like Shyamalan was very secure about the story he's telling. He's not worried about boring the audience. And there's a lot of people who edit around something that's happening because they're afraid that their story isn't uh, compelling enough. That it's not engaging enough. So to keep my audience engaged, I'm going to cut and cut to something else. Uh, the Walter Merch style uh, is only cut if there's something else you want to show. And until there's something else you want to show, do not cut. And so every single cut should advance the story, not just always be for visual interest. Now, sometimes a there's, a, there's a time and place for that. But if you're confident in your story and you're shooting it the way you want, uh, you don't want that energy, especially in that moment when they're on the couch. And this is not about creating energy. It's about trying to calm everything down. It's about him trying to engage with this kid. And so you can see the camera moves are very, very smooth. Like even, and I love that little shot, that reverse POV where he starts backing away and then the camera backs away. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful cut. It's a beautiful camera move uh, because the cut goes from him uh, the close-up of his feet stepping back, but before it finishes its its step, we cut to that reverse angle in the move so that we can feel his momentum that we left in the last edit being completed with the camera move in the next oh edit. Oh my gosh. Then it doesn't feel like oh man, yeah, that's it's continuous. That's brilliant. It's yeah. not like he takes the step and then he's already there when we cut back to the the wide of him. Yeah. It's both both that both shots complete the step. Correct. Dude, yes. that is awesome. It's so good. Like it's smart. Uh, it's the, it's a whole team saying we need this shot. We need this shot. And an editor saying, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we need to do this to, mm-hmm. to really make you feel um, what's happening in this moment. Like, because then the shot itself, right. Is, is Malcolm getting smaller in the frame. He's retreating all these things that you don't want to happen in this moment are now happening and it's emotionally compelling. Like, yeah. b- but if you're not patient with the rest of the setup, it, it loses some of its punch. Yeah. Cause now, now there's energy as he's moving away. That's the energy you want. You don't want the energy to come from these edits. Yeah. It's really smart filmmaking. Like it's, wow. it's a really well-made film. Amazing. Um, even if not the prettiest thing in the world, there are yeah. some pretty shots in there for sure. But um, on the whole, the other thing, just to touch on Anna again, as we were talking about her, I was like, man, 
there's a whole other perspective of this movie that's just hers, which is if you take away the idea that Malcolm is kind of haunting her, the other perspective, one that she, and maybe this brings more relevance to the conversation with the ring in the store. She's talking about how souls can imprint people who held things can imprint their soul on a whatever. Um, and then you factor in the fact that she was holding onto that ring for so long. There's a whole story arc that says on the opposite side, she's keeping Malcolm from moving on. Mm. It's not until she releases the ring that she gives him permission to leave. And that's an interesting oh. perspective too. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Right. That's, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a lot of layers going on here for sure. Probably more than I, I was ready to give it credit for walking into this episode. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, I mean, I believe that because I mean, you know, she's constantly watching their wedding video. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she can't, she can't like get into another relationship with this other guy. Like exactly. she just feels guilty. She goes and has, you know, anniversary dinner by herself. You know, she has not let him go. And, and, you know, maybe that's why Malcolm doesn't realize that he's dead Yeah. either, you know? Um, so yeah. Anyway, that's, that's cool. Cool perspective. So, uh, just to run through some other cinematography notes, um, the camera is often floating around. It's very ghost-like, not all the time, but they pick a lot of shots, a lot of moments to let it float around. Like when early on our first kind of paranormal moment is uh maybe not the very first the very first is the opening shot in the in the wine cellar whenever anna goes down and she suddenly catches a chill and i don't remember if she breathes in or breathes out uh some frosted breath but um if nothing else she caught a chill and it's like oh there's a ghost there that will be revealed upstairs um because he that guy just draws them like these these people draw ghosts to them and so uh, Donnie Wahlberg, by the way. Oh my God. Like that guy. That's, that's who that was. <laughs> that's who that was. Vincent. Gray. Oh my God. <laughs> so, so good. good. <laughs> oh, um, and so they let the camera float around whenever, uh, uh, Cole's mom goes to get a new tie for him. Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. Um, he's at the breakfast table. She walks out, comes back in and all the cabinets are open and the camera is just floating through the space to represent a ghost being present. Same thing with the anniversary dinner with Anna at the table. As the camera's moving in, that is not rock solid. It's it's hovering a lot and just kind of bobbing just slightly, maybe a little uh, dutching on the axis. And it's him. He's the ghost, obviously, in that, in that oh, scenario. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Cole and Malcolm walking. I don't. It's not clear if it's after school or on the way to school or they just go for walks sometimes. Um, but we're across the street when that whole moment begins. And we float across the street to them. When we get to them, the camera solids up quite quite a bit. It, it, it's still a little tiny floaty, but it, to me, it just feels handheld at that point, as opposed to this other kind of ethereal energy that they're giving the camera. And same thing when the father confronts the mother at the funeral. That's another little floaty moment uh, between the two of them. And that's like, you know, Kira is there now witnessing this moment and kind of getting her release and her piece. Um, so I feel like when they float the camera in this very specific stylistic way, they're representing some ghost figure in the moment. There's a reveal here. And this kind of goes to the idea that there's no special or visual effects in this film. And I love how they do this one reveal in the, in the, with the dead girl and the blanket fort, church thing the clothespins start popping off and then we tilt down to reveal the girl vomiting like that's really nice there's no visual effects it's just a camera move it's just a camera reveal and the look on her face as well as the look on his face like the performance is carrying the reveal they didn't just suddenly like ghost her into the scene she was just sitting there waiting for her moment on camera (laughs) Uh, but because of the way they shoot it and the acting it and the the other effect of He's looking up and we're, we're motivating the camera to look up and see the camera, uh, the clothespins popping off. And then we tilt down and she's suddenly there and it's all being followed through his flashlight. It just feels like she suddenly popped up there, even though there's no effect. It's just good choreography. Awesome. <laughs> Love that. There's that other scene with that same uh, little girl is Misha Barton, by the way, uh, very young Misha Barton. And whenever he goes into her bedroom and she grabs his leg, that shot afterwards, whenever he's backed against the wall, 
they get a lot of coverage. And this is one of those things that you can do in any film. And it just takes a little bit of thought and, and belief in yourself. Uh, a lot of the way people shoot is to cover up their inability to choreograph a scene. And if you feel like, I don't know how to make all these things, elements pop together into one shot. Instead, I'll just do inserts, inserts, inserts. And now you can cut around it. Um, whereas if you tie them all together, it gives a much more uh, cohesive feeling and it feels more cinematic. I know that's a word that gets completely obliterated and abused in online culture. But Nobody knows what it means. Anymore, right? It just almost no. lost all the meaning. This is one of those things that can create a sense of cinema that makes it feel like a completely planned production and it pulls you in to the story as opposed to all those other things where you're just cutting around. Again, contextually, there's always a time and a place to do these other things. And for me, I love if you can get coverage all in one shot by moving the camera around, allowing the performers to perform um, and believing that you can direct a scene and the pacing. And so we go from him against the wall. We, we start this shot, him against the wall, and then we pan over to her. She's under the bed. And then we tilt down and she pushes the box towards him. And then we move back to him. We, we tilt and pan over to him. And then we push in on him to get his reaction. That's all one shot. But in your mind, you see like four different cuts. You see that first shot on him. You see the second shot on her. You see the third shot on the box. Then you see the fourth shot of a close-up on him. But that's all one camera move. It's all one thing. And if you can just think around what is the story here, you can create a sense of, uh, of compelling the viewer to not look away, to not blink. And that's the other nice thing about not having an edit. It pulls your audience in so much further whenever you can just keep the action moving without needing to cut. Cut if you need to, um, but but not because you you know feel like you just can't make it work, ideally. Um, another little thing that they do, this is flair, theatrical flair, um, is the road flair. At the end, when that conversation happens with his mom in the car, we start that scene um, at a traffic accident. And that moment starts with a flare being uh, lit right there on the side of the road. I can't imagine any reason they need to... Uh, light up a road flare in the middle of the daytime for a uh, for a car accident. Like, uh, what practical purpose could that serve? Now, if you're a cop in Philadelphia, and you're like, no, that's standard practice, bro. Like, <laughs> okay, I'm I'm open to that, but I my suspicion is road flares are for nighttime. <laughs> um, yeah. that's that's their function. But it's a great way to start the scene. It's visually compelling, and it gives us a reason to move the camera because we start there. And you immediately understand the context of the scene. Something's happened. Yeah. And now you're motivating the camera because the, the flare starts to move away and we move with it until we peel off and start uh, following someone else. And then we keep moving down the cars and you're just slowly building up this whole scene that gets paid off, of course, with the dead girl outside the window and blah, blah, blah. It's really good. It's fun. That's, that's why Shyamalan does what he does, right? Like, I don't need these things. But it's theatrical and it's interesting. Let's do it. Last few notes here. Uh, the kid with the wound in the back of his head. First off, gross. <laughs> but it actually really helps tell the story. Because showing him clean in front and then a big mess in the back helps you understand what happens later in the story with Malcolm who is also clean in front. That's why we never saw him bleed out like all the rest of these ghosts. It's because he had that same deal with the kid, uh, the, the messes in the back. And so there's like this simple visual tie that helps you buy in a little bit more to why uh, Malcolm is a ghost and why you didn't pick up on it. There was no cheating. It's a, it's a hat tip to say, we didn't cheat. Like this mm -hmm. is consistent with the rest of the story we're telling. The other cool thing story-wise is the first time you're watching this, there's a question in the viewer's mind and we can't recreate it because once you know the big punchline, it's all over. But the first experience is asking this question of, is Cole really experiencing ghosts or is this a psychological hallucination? Because this is all being told from the perspective of a psychologist. So we don't know if this is a supernatural story or not. And so when Cole starts experiencing some of these things, you're like, well, that's really freaky. I, but I guess we don't really know yet. And it's not until 
of course, the big reveal where you do know. But there is this question on second viewing that begins to happen, which is how you read not just all those interactions, but the interactions between Malcolm and Cole himself. Because certain things that Cole says, you're like, well, wait, does he know? Or is he not sure? Um, and like the first moment when they meet in church, right? And Malcolm uh, or Cole is wearing the glasses, but he doesn't have the lenses on. I feel like that's kind of a, a hat tip to he can't really see what's happening, but he's not entirely sure uh, because there's that moment before he leaves Malcolm where Cole asks, I'm going to see you again, aren't I? You could take that two ways. Like one, oh, I'm, I'm going to have to deal with this doctor a lot. That's how we take it on the first viewing. On second viewing, you can be like, oh, he's getting comfortable with dealing with a ghost. Like, mm -hmm. and now you can read all the, the dialogue and the lines um, as someone who's finally not scaring the crap out of this kid, but also um, that he, he, he actually likes and he trusts and he's like, you're the only one that can help me. Like the, every time he says you in this movie, you can take that as you Malcolm or you ghosts in general. Right. Uh, that's right. a royal you, man. <laughs> the ro <laughs> I like it. Uh, and the other fascinating aspect of this whole thing is Malcolm, being the psychologist, helps kids by listening to them. And now he's trying to get Cole to do the same thing, right? He needs to help Cole listen to ghosts so that he can help them. It's like he's passing on his skill set as a psychologist um, onto, onto this kid. And that's a way to give him his own coping mechanisms. I think there's some layer here that I can't quite hundred percent pin down. That's about therapy, helping people um, become their own therapist. And that's how you win as a therapist is helping people create these new skill sets in themselves. Um, and I think that's just a fascinating, like thematic element uh, to help tell your, tell the story. The other thing is this movie, there's not a lot to it. I mean, yeah, there's no visual effects, uh, but it's also just super, super simple. And the reason that it blew up, of course, is because Malcolm was dead the whole time, right? That doesn't catch people off guard. It doesn't really work as well if you don't make them feel like there's another story. Mm -hmm. And it's the, the feeling of finality when you resolve Cole's issue and get him to talk to his mom. That makes you feel like, Okay, this was a simple like story about a boy and his mom. Cool, that's really good, and it was emotionally satisfying. Cool, and it's, but and it's given and it it's where you drop your sense of safety. You're like, okay, we got through this thing. Cool, that's when they wind up and hit you with the real punch, right? With with Malcolm, yeah. and of course, that's why everyone was really guarded about. I when, I remember when this came out, people would say, "Have you seen Sixth Sense?" Like, yeah, what's it about? Uh, just go yeah. see it. <laughs> yeah, just go watch it. Yeah, just go yeah. watch it. Yeah. Uh, because of that moment, you want people to experience that moment. This is a big reason why, you know, uh, I'm big on spoilers. Like it's just so you can't recreate that experience. Yeah. You either get to have that moment or you don't, someone else has ruined it for you. Um, and having that moment of realizing, like you said, that whole sequence of, of Malcolm realizing that he's dead, that he never made it out of that first scene. Is really amazing. It's cut well. It's acted incredibly. Bruce Willis, my God, to your point, I really think he's dead. I saw his spirit leave. And yet, you know, the the emotional like punch of it is just so, so uh it's fun. Like this is why yeah. we go to movies. Um, it, yeah, and, it just it it pulls the rug out from underneath the the entire movie that you've been watching. You know? I mean, he dies pretty early on. So it's like I would say, you know. 85% of the movie that you've been watching is now like completely pulled out from underneath you. And so, yeah, so to, to have that taken away from you where you don't get that experience or like you don't get the, um, Luke, I'm kind of experience. It's like, well, that ruins yeah. like a childhood sometimes, yeah. you know? So Yeah, that's true. Cause everyone else got to experience it and you were like, I didn't get that moment. Um, yeah, there's a certain amount of relational thing that you can't identify with. But they they land that moment and they immediately get the F out. Like, yeah, we, we, we turn that screw and we see him say goodbye. And then we cut to a shot of them at their wedding. And that's just like a moment to 
there's no real reason. There's, there's no reason to have that shot. It's just like, let's give everyone a happy moment of them being together as our final image. Cause that's kind of her final image in this whole story is we were happy once. Goodbye. Yeah. And then we're out. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's beautiful and, and really well-crafted. I don't know. There was another point I wanted to make and I completely forgot what it was. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. Yeah. That's right. Uh, uh yeah, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I'm glad we did it. I wasn't super looking forward to it because I thought I already know the answer to this, but it, it's it's cool. Like doing 200, this is our 250th episode. I feel like 249 episodes ago, I probably wouldn't have had the same appreciation of yeah. the things that we are appreciating right now of this film. The layers that that happen and the decisions that were made and and yeah, I'm sure that there's some things that probably M. Knight would have done different now. But for the most part, I think this is kind of a timeless film in a way where like, yeah. you know, it it just like puts a stamp on a a point in cinema and says before or after. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. I think maybe The Shining is another one. Psycho is probably another one. Star Wars, you know, like up with those. Yeah. Echelon. Alien, Blade Runner. And all the ones you just mentioned, um, mm-hmm. and big, I feel, big tent poles in cinema history. Yeah. And yes, it has to do with all the things we talked about with camera movements and with performances and all that stuff. But it, a lot of it is the, the payoff at the end. I mean, like that's what people remember is like Bruce Willis being dead and, and I see dead people like that had never been done before. It know? hadn't, but I think what's amazing about this movie is how well it did for something that had so little theatrics to it. Mm -hmm. It's such Mm -hmm. a simple story. This is all writing. This is just a writer's story. Yeah. And people went crazy for it. Like the amount of times I, I heard that kid on the radio saying he saw dead people. Like Mm -hmm. I, it's, I still hear it. I still hear I hear that radio ad. (laughs) Like it's me in bed curled up saying, I still hear that radio ad. Like, And it's just amazing how it was just really good acting, really good writing, really good directing. Um, and there, the, nothing happened in this movie that you probably couldn't do for a million dollar budget, you know, yeah. if not less on today's terms, let alone in, in those days. Like in that you probably could have done it for a fraction, like 300 grand in, in mm-hmm. 99. Like it's amazing. It's just good, good story. Just tell a really good story and people can flip out over it right yeah totally agree Hmm. totally agree man nice what uh with the sixth sense in mind which by the way this movie ruined that phrase that that used to be a very normal phrase like oh yeah that guy's got a sixth sense uh about things you can't really say that phrase anymore like that phrase died with this movie (laughs) (laughs) i agree (laughs) i agree Uh, what are you gonna Um, recommend this week man I'm going to recommend, and I'm surprised I hadn't recommended it before, but I'm going to recommend a. It's not like a, like a scary movie or anything, but um, it was a movie that another movie that was made very simply and very quickly over the pandemic um, with Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm going to recommend The Guilty, which is I believe it's still on Netflix. I'm not sure, but I think it came out on Netflix, and it was made. They made it in like two weeks, and it was during the pandemic where like I think the director at one point he got sick so he had to be in a trailer outside of a the and and they had to like talk over a wall like it was like just a great example of like like hey here's a story we're not gonna let things get in the way we're gonna we're just gonna make this you know and and we're gonna make use as little as possible and we're just gonna tell this little story and um i think it's a it's really well done and jake gyllenhaal he's just a fantastic fantastic actor in so many ways but he does a really great job um, carrying this entire film. So Nice call, man. Yeah, that's such a... Uh, and we did a bonus episode on our Patreon, um, which Patreon yeah. uh, listeners, I'm sorry, I've had a rough year and I will promise to make more <laughs> bonus content yeah. for you soon. But we did a bonus episode on that that was really fun um, because right. it, I, for the exact point you're making, like it's a simple, simple movie. They They made it super fast, which was pretty incredible. But it's just compelling. It's just a compelling. You don't need a lot to tell a compelling story. Oh, in a similar way, there is a new ghost movie out that I love. Um, it's it's really solid. Uh, it's called Talk to Me. 
and it's by these Australian filmmakers. It takes place in Australia. And those I haven't guys, seen it yet. It's not out here. Uh, I it, it might have left already the the theater, and so it, it, it's probably in the tweener stage between a, a release on streaming somewhere. Um, mm. Yeah, stinks because I was like maybe we could do that one sometime this month, but I think we we lost our perfect moment. Um, oh. It's solid. Like it's hard to come up with new original ideas, and uh, I think they did a great job with telling their story and the backstory of them making that thing blew my mind. Um, because it was a, it was a deal where they had funding and the executives, the the financiers were wanting them to make certain changes to their story that they were like, ah, we can't do it. We're just going to have to figure this out on our own. Um, and they did and they crushed it <laughs> like, uh, to, to have Miranda Otto, you know, step into your film and, and this is just amazing. But yeah, great backstory to it as well but just a it's a really fun ghost story um i highly recommend it i'm so confused because it says it came out in 2022 but it's it's coming out in theaters that might be that's the second one? Oh, that's funny i i suspect they put 2022 because that was the festival debut oh sometimes that happens i've i've noticed that on some movies where they'll on imdb will put the premiere date of like a film festival um, instead of its actual theatrical uh, debut. And so, yeah, it took a while between, I want to say they went to Sundance and just knocked it out of the park and then got distribution. And it takes, you know, forever to, to have your film get fully distributed and for whatever reason, but yeah, 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 dude. Yeah. You got to see that. I mean, if we can, if it comes out by the time uh, we're on the last episode of our ghost stories, then uh, we should cover it just because why not? But uh, I think I'd also like to talk about those guys because they're wild. My God. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. anyway, stay tuned next week. We continue our, our ghost stories with uh, a little, a little ghost story you may have heard of. It's uh, a few brave gentlemen in the city of New York handling paranormal activity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who are you going to call <laughs> ghostbusters, baby? Um, it's uh, stay tuned for that next week um if you're enjoying the show don't forget drop us a review subscribe leave us a note if there's something you want us to talk about a uh, film that you like uh we're happy to take it into advisement uh, our panel of judges and advisors our board of directors will, will let us know if it gets approval <laughs> we we have no board um and if you want to comment on this episode you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash the sixth sense and our quote of the day is from Sigmund Freud. I have found little that is good about human beings on the whole. In my experience, most of them are trash, no matter whether they are publicly, whether they publicly subscribe to this or that ethical doctrine or to none at all. That is something that you cannot say aloud or perhaps even think. <laughs> I've, I've. Don't subscribe to that I don't doctrine. Subscribe to that at all. Um, and it's not. Be, it's not because it's Sigmund Freud, and I think that a lot of what he, you know, studied and, and everything is like more for shock and awe factor. Sometimes, yeah, yeah, um, agreed. I just don't agree with that at all. That's such a wild thing, like for a therapist or a psychologist to be like, yeah, I, I've found little that's good about people. In my experience, they're trash. Like the like, the use of trash there is so like what? Yeah, like <laughs> and and talk for I don't know for someone who's scientific who's supposed to be scientific to label an entire species, you know, like that just doesn't that doesn't jive. That's like and I was thinking about this actually the other day. Maybe it was yesterday. You know, the whole idea that that like nature is not evil. Mm. You know, because it just, it just is, it has one goal, which is to survive and, you know, whatever. I don't also necessarily subscribe to that. I think that there are probably creatures that just kill for the sake of killing. And just because they're a creature doesn't necessarily mean that they can't be, you know, like bad. You know what I mean? Or like, I, so I guess my point is, is that I don't necessarily think that nature is not evil as, and I also don't necessarily think that human beings are inherently evil. Right. Mm. I think that there are plenty of people who 
even though they are imperfect, you know, are more good than they are bad. And so if that's the case, then this completely falls flat because he's also just speaking in his experience, you know, like maybe you haven't dealt with the right types of people. I mean, you're, you know, you're a psychologist and your whole goal really is to study like the most effed up people (laughs) that you could probably get your hands on. In that case, yeah, your worldview is going to be pretty skewed. I don't know. It is interesting because I I don't know that kids are born one way or the other, like in terms of their intent or morality, their sense of good and evil. It takes a while to develop those things. And that's the whole nature nurture, you know, debate. And I think generally everyone falls on it's both right. And like uh, you're influenced to a large degree by both, you know, how you were born, what you're made of your DNA, um, as well as the things you go through and those things combine into something else into you and watching this film, even like there's that moment where Malcolm is making notes to himself. Uh, and he, he talks about how Cole may be going through some kind of, uh, childhood schizophrenia. And I thought that was just an, an interesting thing to say because I'd never really considered about childhood schizophrenia. Um, I've done work with, you know, psychiatric, you know, psychologists and told stories about, you know, people having schizophrenic breaks and there's all these little things that can happen when you're younger, but by and large, it seems like most people, once they have some kind of schizophrenic break, is when they're older. It's after a lot of experiences combined with whatever may be going on chemically with them. Um, But the experiences matter. The things you go through as a kid really, really impact those elements, even though it's not always the case. It's complicated. And yeah, it it does feel like he's kind of skipping out a lot about um, that whole process. Just to kind of boil it down to in my experience, most of them are trash because even them, he's still qualifying. He's still saying most, he's not saying all. Mm-hmm. And I found the little that's good. Yeah. It, you know, what uh, is the little, what is that? And little? Why, why can't yeah. you talk about that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. And also, and also like there are a lot of demands on people in this world that if they didn't exist, maybe those people wouldn't behave that way. Yeah. I mean, for the obvious being money, you know, I think that that, you know, that people say money is the root of all evil. It doesn't mean money's evil. It just means that like people feel like they need to make money. And to do that, sometimes they have to do bad things. Some people that, you know, like say there was no money, say we didn't that wasn't a thing in our world, you know, like things would be different. But people have to feel like a lot of times and because of their experience, I'm very much a a, a nurturer type person i think that nature has a little bit but it's mostly nurture yeah i think that that has everything to do with why people do what they do sometimes they you as a as a person might you know feel like you want to be accepted by society and so you do things that you normally wouldn't do in order to so anyway yeah i i love that and even the uh to go back to the original like biblical version that I always read was it's the root of all sorts of evil. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's the desire for it even. Right. And it's like mm-hmm. you and I both know this is a non-living entity. It's what people will do for this thing. Um, and you could substitute money for anything at that point. Um, yeah. And, and suddenly it's just how they are approaching this or that, but also just how you're approaching them. Cause if Freud is approaching everyone, with this assumption underlying that this is probably a trash person that's going to shade your interaction with them as well. And now maybe you're just living a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, And, and also circumstance, like you have two people, one person makes a million dollars a year and works 80 hours a week. Another person and, and alienates their children. mm. Another person works 80 hours a week and alienates their children. Who is in the wrong? (laughs) Right. They're both doing the exact bad thing, alienating their children because they're working too hard. But this person has no money and only works two jobs so that they can they can put food on the table for their child, even though they're alienating them. It is a completely different perspective. You that know? person poisons their kid with pine salt. <laughs> pine salt. <laughs> yeah. Dear God. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, oh, great think hilarious. piece there. We yeah. should do like a um, we should do like uh, some 
extra little episodes of, of us just like talking about quotes of the day <laughs> yeah, that we like deep diving yeah yeah like, we could go through a whole marcus aurelius uh, uh book like, Ooh, that yeah. guy. my god damn yeah <laughs> Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. We hope you liked it. Uh, That was a lot of fun for us. Make sure to subscribe, review, all that good stuff. Uh, It all helps and suggest a a film that you'd like to see us pick apart. Maybe we'll do it. Uh, Until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies.